0: quick word of introduction before we uh, get to our passage. The passage we're about to read reveals a key spiritual principle, and it comes about in a very emotional day for King David. He's the second king of Israel. One key piece of information you need to know is that David has finally united Israel together. He had been king over the southern part of the kingdom, Judah, for about six years, and now he's finally united the kingdom, and he's bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to remind you that you have to put on your rescue mission lenses to really uh, pick out the three dimensions in this, uh, in, in this passage. So try to remember the big themes that we've been covering as we've gone through this story. You know, um, the, the rescue mission idea, promise uh, versus flesh idea, spirit versus flesh idea. Uh, try, to, try to add all those big threads we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And um, actually, it's been more than a few weeks, huh? This is, I think, week 11, through the last 11 weeks, and and, and uh, let them all compile together as we, we see the Scripture passage today. This is a turning point in the history of the Israelites as God continues to use them as his main vehicle for carrying out his rescue plans to bless and restore all things. This particular event in David's life really sums up his heart and his character. As one of their early actions in his United Kingdom, it really stands out, against the heart and character of his predecessor, Saul. Having said that, we'll, we'll read the text, and then I'll pray. 2 Samuel 6, verses 12 through 23. Now King David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping, And dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the The Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help in applying it. Heavenly Father, we come to worship you and to your word tonight. And we come with a certain set of preconceived notions of who you are and what type of people you want us to be. Lord, we confess that some of those preconceptions are not based on your word, but based on our upbringing. Please help us to shed those false ideas and allow us to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am 38 years old. Not that old, but not that young. And one of the things I've noticed over those 38 years, especially the latter part of those 38 years, is just how much of life that you and I live influenced by fear. I've noticed that much of what we do or don't do can be traced back to decisions that are influenced greatly by fear. So how we parent, who we associate with, what kind of hobbies we enjoy, even practical things like what kind of clothes we buy, how we invest our money, what we volunteer for. All these things are greatly influenced by three main fears. I want to ask you, as I go through these three fears, ask yourself which one has the biggest tendency to influence your decisions. First is the fear of failure. The fear of failure rears its ugly head and causes us to, on one hand, not apply for the promotion that might take us a little bit out of our league. But on the other hand, the fear of failure causes us to overwork and causes our work-life balance to become out of whack. The fear of failure will cause us, when we are younger, to not ask that guy or girl out for a date or not try out for the volleyball team. And when we are older, the fear of failure will cause us to turn down a very exciting job change because it will uproot us or decline a high-profile volunteer position because we don't want to fail. It'll cause you to say no to risky things and cause you to dwell dwell on and over-control things that you're involved in. Fear of failure will give you hesitation about having kids. And once you do have kids, fear of failure will drive you crazy when they don't follow your expectations. Fear of failure, when it comes to money, will cause you to highly invest in a retirement fund, get it fully padded, highly save, and will cause you to be anxious when those balances slip a little. How many people you think are, in, are you influenced by the fear of failure? All right. Second fear fear of rejection. This fear tends towards people pleasing. You'll say stuff to fit in, you'll do stuff to fit in, to go along with the crowd. You don't rock the boat. You find yourself taking certain jobs, dating certain people, buying certain clothes. And certain types of cars, because they are either safe with the people you are around, or because that will make you well-esteemed in the people you are around. You don't do things that would make people wonder why you're doing them. You don't do things that would invoke judgment upon you. Fear of rejection causes you to say yes when you really want to say no. Fear of rejection causes you to say no when you really want to say yes. Are you a people pleaser? Are you influenced by the fear of rejection? How many uh, fit this category? Thank you for admitting it, despite fear of rejection. (laughs) The last one, and this is probably the most simple, is is, uh, the fear of, we're going to lump them all together, okay? The fear of pain, suffering, death. It's what makes you play life safe. You wouldn't even consider buying or riding a motorcycle. You won't bungee jump, you won't skydive, not even the tandem when you're linked to the instructor. You'll generally drive the speed limit or you'll give yourself like a six-mile buffer. You stay away from situations and roles that place you in possibilities to experience pain or suffering. And you tend to keep a safe distance away from folks experiencing pain or suffering or death because it makes you think about your own impending pain, suffering, and death. Are you influenced by this fear? Do you try to minimize pain, suffering, stay away from death at all costs? After reading our passage, would you say David is influenced greatly by any of these three fears No. There is one fear that David is influenced by. Can you figure out what it is? Sam, way in the back. Yes. He's influenced by the fear of the Lord. Preacher's kid. I want to focus on this. But I don't want to use the phrase fear of the Lord because it's very misleading in our contemporary use of the word fear. Reverence for God might be a little bit closer, but I want to do even better than that tonight. I want to express it this way. David lives for an audience of one. You know what I mean? He lives for an audience of one. He lives his life as if God is the only one in the stands watching. That's a good positive way of describing the fear of the Lord living as if he's the only one that matters. He's the only one whose opinion you're swayed by. He's the only one in the crowd. He's living for an audience of one. This is the, one of the key traits of David, one of the key points that distinguish him from his predecessor, Saul. I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, after being led by the prophets for a time, Israel cries out for a king, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. We, we don't want to have this ambiguous, invisible mediator, mediation thing between you and us. We want a tangible king. And so they cry out for a king, and God uh, um, has Samuel, the prophet, anoint Saul as king. But right from the get-go, Saul does what he wants, And not what God wants. He follows half of God's rules. But does half of what he wants to do. And so. Right from the start. The very first king turns off. Leading the people astray. Other parts of the Bible. Reveal Saul's jealousy. And how he very much plays in a fear of rejection. And he values and depends upon. The opinions of those he governs. He gets really bent out of shape. When the people say. Saul. Uh, when when they're fighting against the Philistines, the people cry out, Saul kills uh, thousands, but David tens of thousands. He's really a people pleaser. Saul is really a picture of when we live according to our natural desires. Saul is a king after the flesh, after human tendencies, where David, except for a little Psalm 51 mishap with Bathsheba, is uh, generally a uh, a spirit-filled king. So we have the flesh and the promise, the flesh and the spirit. So I want to walk us through our passage again and highlight some of the the, uh, spirit-filledness of David and uh, see how it applies to our life. Let's look at verse um, 12 again, 12 and 15. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Okay, so he's bringing in the ark of God. He's bringing in God's presence. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Verse 14, David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all his might. I was fascinated by that as a kid. I would love to dance with all my might, but I'm afraid I'd injure myself and end up in the ER. Verse 15, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. What role is David playing in this part? Okay, it says a couple things. He's bringing in the ark of God. He's offering sacrifices. He's wearing the linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. Only priests wear um, the ephod. Only priests wear the linen ephod. E- e- ephod. ephod, I can't say that. Um, what role is David taking here? Yeah, he's taking the role of the priest. Now, usually the priest took the role of the priest, but on, on special occasions, sometimes the king would step in that role. And here, David's stepping right into it. He has the priestly garments on it. He's bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with his people. And... He is uh, offering sacrifices. And if we skip verse 16 for a moment, we'll pick up back up verse 16 and we read verses 17 and 19. We'll read more of how David acts like the priest. Verse 17 They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, of Israelites both men and women, and the people went to their homes. David's wearing the priestly robes, he's dancing before the Lord with all his might, he's offering sacrifices. If we were to summarize just these three actions right there, okay? Wearing the priestly robe, dancing before the Lord with all his might, offering burn offerings and peace offerings or, or fellowship offerings, um, how could we summarize these actions? David is what? He's worshiping. Or another way to put it, and this ties in nicely with he's dancing with all his might. He is loving Is God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength? Okay, he's worshiping, he's loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, if we if we look at the rest of verses 18 and 19 that I read, it says, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Okay? He blessed the people, and then he gave each person, much to the dismay of the treasurer, I imagine. He gave each person, each man and woman, it wasn't just one per household, he gave every adult present a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake. Now, this is pretty amazing. It says all of Israel were gathered. Now, I don't think there were two million people squeezed into the Jerusalem at this time. I don't think it was literally all the people of Israel, but I do think there were tens of thousands of people there. In fact, at the beginning of uh, chapter 6 in 2 Samuel, it says when, when um, David initially brought the ark forward about halfway, um, there were, he called up 30,000 men to accompany the ark. And that was just the men. So we could be looking at 30,000, 60,000 more. And David gives each of them a loaf of bread, a cake of raisins, and a cake of dates. This is some, some pretty... That, that had to take a hit somewhere. If you were to summarize these actions, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord Almighty, and then he gives them these three gifts. How would you summarize this? David was... Sam, way back. put him under pressure. It's hard to go two for two. He's loving the people, right? He's blessing the people, and he's giving them gifts. So here, very early, uh, w- well, I guess we're, we're, it's not very early in the Old Testament, um, we, but, it, but uh, fairly early in the Bible, we see these two things at work in David's Uh, in this event in David's life. He's loving the Lord God with all his heart, mind, and strength. He's dancing with all his might. He's sacrificing. He's wearing the the linen ephod. And then he's also loving his neighbor. He's blessing them. He's giving them food, gifts of of food. These are two major signs of God's rescue, rescue mission at work. Remember from Genesis 12, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. I want to import a verse here from 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 16 and 18. 1 John 4, 16 says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And then verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Now we just said earlier that in this passage it didn't seem like David was operating in a fear of rejection. It didn't seem like David was operating out of fear of suffering or pain. It didn't seem like he was op- operating in fear of failure. No, he was going all out in worship for the Lord. He loved God. He was loving people. There was no fear present. Now Michael was a different story. Enter verses 16 and 20, and I'll read that for you. Verses 16 says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, his wife, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Then verse 20, When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, You've got to read the dripping sarcasm into this. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. And you know, her hand was on her hips like that, and she was doing that shake. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Was Micah, Michael loving God and loving people by her words and her actions? No. She was, she was pretty gripped, probably by pride, ego, maybe jealousy, envy, people pleasing. You know what is the other royalty going to say when they see my husband down there in the linen ephod? Now the linen ephod, uh, if he was just wearing that, one would be probably a bit see through, and uh, two also, although um, you know archaeologists aren't one hundred percent sure, but 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 they think that it was it was kind of like an apron that you tie in the back. And so there's a good chance that the backside of David would have been exposed. David has none of that. He says, I was celebrating before the Lord. It was before the Lord. And I will become even more undignified than this. I don't care what the royals think. I don't care what the army thinks. I don't care what the people think. I'm living for an audience of one. And he leapt and he danced and he celebrated and he gave with abandon because he was doing it for an audience of one. Fear causes us to live for ourselves. Fear causes us to live for ourselves. It causes us to make selfish decisions. It short-circuits our ability to live for an audience of one. In the, in the fact that David is playing the role of a priest, he's also foreshadowing a picture of the Messiah here. He's foreshadowing a picture of the Messiah that God will send, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the ultimate redeemer. And I never realized just how much in this passage that David is a type of Christ here. First, David ushers in the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence with his people. Jesus ushers in the kingdom of heaven, a way of, a message that God's approachable presence is here, God's approachable presence is with the people. Second, David offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus offers himself up as the ultimate sacrifice for the people. Third, David humbles himself and becomes undignified for the sake of God. Same it is with Christ. Listen to a couple of these passages. First from Luke 7, When Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman, a prostitute comes, lets down her ears, and sobbing at the feet of Jesus' feet, who's at the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And uh, listen to verse 39 in chapter 7. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. But the point is, Jesus did know. She knew he knew the woman's sinfulness and also knew the woman's repentance and the woman's love. He didn't care what Simon thought. He didn't care what anyone else at the dinner thought because Jesus was living for the audience of one, the Father. One more passage that exemplifies this is, Luke, is uh, John 13. The Last Supper. Starting with verse 3, it says... his outer fancy clothes, wraps a towel around him and begins washing his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he's wearing. Now, what would Michael have said if she was in that room? She would have said, whoa, how the Messiah distinguishes himself tonight. Jesus would say, I will become even more undignified than this. And Shortly after he does, he is mocked, spit on, tortured, and then crucified for our behalf. The last way that David is a type of Christ is that David models for us loving God and loving people. We, we talked about that earlier. But Jesus sums up this very idea in a unique way to his uh, contemporaries. The, the uh, re- religious leaders are trying to trick him. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, a teacher trying to trick him says, "'Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law?' And Jesus replies, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength.'" This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. "'Love your neighbor as yourself.'" All the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. Love God, love people. Those are the four ways that David is a type of Christ. There's one way that Jesus, um, one thing that Jesus does that David isn't able to do for us. And that's provide the power source to do it all. Jesus provides the power source to help us live for the audience of one, help us love God and love people. And I called that verse up earlier, 1 John 1, 4, 16, and 18. And the very next verse, I don't have it up here. You'll just have to trust me. In the the very next verse, after it says, there is no fear, but perfect love drives out fear. In 1 John 4, 19, it says this, we love because he first loved us. That's the key right there. When we recognize Jesus as the Son of God, he connects us to God's love. And when we realize, when we receive, when we revel in Christ's love for us, our fear is driven out. And we'll want to live for an audience of one the more we recognize the sacrifice of our Savior, the less we'll care about staying in the lines, about pleasing whoever is in our circles, and the more we'll be empowered to please the one who matters, the Heavenly Father. When I read this passage and I see David's indignity, See, hear him leap and dance with all his might in the linen ephod and see his generosity to the thousands It kind of makes me a little squeamish I don't know if I have it in me all my life I've been conditioned with peer pressure live up to standards, live up to expectations. Sometimes that's good, but sometimes that's not good. So I pray for myself and for you that as we reflect on the cross in our everyday devotions, but especially so as we come towards Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, that we may realize the great length that God went to show us his love. And may we feel it. May it make its way from our head to our heart. And may we give ourselves more and more to him, living for the audience of one.